Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Carrie murdered a child. The evidence and the counter evidence. I'm struggling with that. When the facts are filled with coincidences, don't dismiss those coincidences. for the unexplainable. Well then, sir, you'll have no tolerance for me. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Still Watching The Outsider. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week on this podcast, we've been discussing the latest episode of The Outsider. This week, we will be discussing the finale, which is episode 10, Must Can't. Uh, written by Richard Price, directed by Andrew Bernstein. Um, this appears to be a series finale, you would think, but we will discuss whether or not how hard they left the door open for a possible season two um, of The Outsider. Um, we will get to that. We are also going to do something a little unusual in this episode. Usually we just stick to whatever... Whatever show brought us here, but um, at the end of this episode, Richard and I are going to do a little Westworld preview. We're going to just talk about some things we're excited to discuss and and looking forward to in season three which will be the next show we'll be covering for still watching starting this sunday so you know you won't even have to wait a full week before you hear us again lucky you um richard before i get into even like emails from listeners can you give me your overall temperature on this this finale and um how it's sitting with you i'm suing hbo on andy's behalf (laughs) okay yeah all right let's get into that really quickly uh richard and i uh, we love our listeners i swear to goodness we do but please don't assume that we've seen an episode of a tv show uh right as it's airing because sometimes we haven't and and you find folks tweeted at both richard and me last night um some uh, you know developments that happened in the episode before we had a chance to see them with our own eyeballs. And that's, you know, we would prefer that not happen in the future. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was on a Metro North train coming back into the city from Connecticut and just looking on Twitter and I was like, Oh God damn it. (laughs) So if best avoided if possible. Yeah. It's one thing for it to be in the feed. That's sort of like, you know, look at Twitter at your own peril. It's when you at us, like, you know, then it just goes into our mentions and that's, that's just a little bit more. So uh, good rule of thumb is this. Oftentimes networks do not send us screeners for finale episodes. So if it's a finale episode of a season and you're watching it live, don't add us because odds are, you know, I'm on the West coast. 
I I was moving someone this weekend. I did not have time to watch the episode right when it aired. So uh we learned about Andy's fate via Twitter at replies. <laughs> um that's how we got that information. Um but you know, nonetheless, RIP Andy, RIP a lot of people uh in this episode actually. Yeah. Uh the body count was pretty high. Um I guess I will, I'll hit a few emails before we get into our discussion. So this first one is from, uh, Jeremy Jurgens, uh, listener. What an, what an incredible name, uh, Jeremy. I love this name. Um, and this is all about Andy and, um, Jeremy makes some interesting connections between how Andy is used in the TV series and how a different character is used in Stephen King's books. Because as we've discussed before, Andy is a show creation, um, RIP and, uh, is not from the novels. So Jeremy writes, <clears throat> love the pod, longtime listener, looking forward to going back to Westworld with you soon. I had a few thoughts about the outsider finale as a book reader and King fanatic. And then he says spoilers for the, for the finale, but we assume since you've gotten this far, you guys are ready for spoilers. Um, I know everyone is going to be terribly sad about our sweet boy, Andy, RIP to a real one. And I am too. I did kind of see it coming from a while away, but I was hoping that I'd be wrong. And he and Holly would move to the Oregon coast and open a bakery in a little town and both wear amazing knit sweaters and grow weed in their garden. But alas, anyway, even though he's not in the book, Andy has doomed Stephen King love interest tattooed all over him. King often kills off girlfriends, boyfriends, partners, or spouses of his lead characters, often in surprising or dramatic way, but with his trademark and, dare I say, charming, on-the-nose foreshadowing, of course. In fact, Andy's death isn't too dissimilar to the death of a character in the book Mr. Mercedes, a woman who is actually Bill Hodge's love interest. That character is also killed in a car explosion by the villain of that story. What I thought was most interesting about Andy, though, is how he served as a kind of replacement in the series for Holly's backstory with Bill Hodges himself. While Bill and Holly never had a romantic or sexual relationship, their dynamic is quite similar to Andy and Holly, more paternal, obviously. Holly, who has never had any close friends or anyone to trust or confide in, finds in Bill a much-needed platonic intimacy, and his respect for her intellect and his humane treatment of her helps her find her inherent confidence and the strength to face real evil. In Richard Price's The Outsider, Holly still gets that arc, but it happens concurrently with her hunt for El Cuco, not before it. This time, the relationship is a more charged, physical, and sweet dynamic, but it still provides Holly with a confident co-conspirator and friend. So while I'm sad that Andy hasn't exploded, I'm also pretty tickled to see how Price and his collaborators on the series still manage to bring Holly Gibney's whole multi-book arc or at least the broad swaths of it, to just one story. It would have been burdensome on this theory, on this series to try and bring in or explain the Bill Hodges stuff, but they still managed to give us a solid version of her larger story. It's kind of like how the MCU finally gave their Peter Parker his Uncle Ben moment in Endgame, only his Uncle Ben in that story is Tony Stark. Anyway, that's all I got. Love this adaptation. Love King's book. Love a Revo in the part. Love the finale. R.I.P. Andy. Uh, so that's from Jeremy. And I think that is, that is a really interesting thing that I hadn't thought about. I mean, having not read the Mr. Mercedes stuff from Stephen King, um, I only have our listener emails about Bill Hodges and how his death in that book informs how Holly starts, uh, in the outsider book. And, uh, I agree. It's, that's not something that had occurred to me. It's very smart to still give her that arc, but not make a viewer have to know something about a, a another book that they haven't read. You know what I mean, Richard? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think there, you know, we, we've complained about it a little bit that maybe it should have, this season should have been eight episodes or whatever, but with the, a little bit extra length, you get to kind of include character stuff like that without making it seem, you know, kind of squeezing it in, uh, too forcibly. And then ultimately, you know, we, we, we've been like worried since Andy, since we met him. Uh, and so my question to you, Richard, is like, are we just too, Sometimes I watch uh, TV shows with people who don't watch a lot of TV and I get jealous of how like excited or shocked or whatever they get by things that uh, you, you and I who watch way too much TV are just sort of like, well, obviously that's where it's going. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so my question about something like Andy, where like I, I, I felt like the foreshadowing Andy was so strong that then I was expecting a subversion of that foreshadowing you know what i mean i was like oh it's too obvious but like is that just because we watch too much tv or or did the outsider like did that andy death land for you the way that i the writers obviously wanted it to in the end i mean kind of yes and no 
like I okay. get why it happened and I, you know, like it did seem obvious that it was going to happen. I think the quite the big question was, which was what we were talking about last week was just how dark is this show kind of trying to be, you know, like what kind of point are they trying to make and how are they trying to make it? And I mean, they made it last night. Like I feel, you know, like it was, a, it was a bit grimmer than I thought it was going to be. Um, but like, um, yeah, I mean, I think, and I think with the particular case of Andy, not to say nothing of the other people who died in the episode, um, was it cruel to Holly in a way? Yes. But also, like you said, like in terms of the maybe vaguely open-ended, um, season two possibilities, I don't think you want a character like that, um, yoked to another, you know, yoked to someone. Like, I think you want them to be kind of independent on, on the wind, you know, and so unfortunately for, um, potential future, uh, narrative uh, convenience, Andy had to be dispatched. Right. If if they want Holly to be in another uh, season, they she can't have her happily ever after now sort no. of thing. So much for the Portland dream um, of Jeremy's. Uh, let's just talk about a few other deaths before we get into this other email that I want to read, which is uh, let's start with Seal Bolton. Seal Bolton, Claude's brother, you know, just gets – gets a shotgun blast of the or whatever that gun is i don't know guns um uh gets shot in the chest uh this felt to me like what was the point of this character and like what was the character motivation for him to charge forward like that and did it have enough of an impact on claude that it really mattered that seal you know that his brother did that um in the end do you have any seal seal thoughts i mean he was a little kind of like the nikki and paolo of of this, <laughs> this, this show, right? Like introduced and then killed, and you're like, huh? Why did we even bother with that? You yeah. Know? Why? Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I like I didn't have any affection for that character. I didn't have any disdain for that character because I didn't really, you know, that character just sort of, sort of existed and then it didn't. Um, and I guess it was trying to like prove a point about the sort of grief ripples, you know, because now, um, uh, you know, I guess because now Claude will um have to deal with that. Like, so even though they defeated the outsider. Um, his effect still lingers quite heavily in the lives of the people, uh, who defeated him. Right. And so, um, how he dies as well. Um, which I was really surprised by that. That felt, that felt the most gratuitous. Yeah. That felt like a lot. Like basically, I think we both were like, Oh, Eunice is definitely going to die. <laughs> He's the only one who lived. So, um, but I, I think all these people need to die. So that when Holly and Ralph both walk out of that cave, we're not like, what a, you know, you know, how, how, how weak of them to not, um, actually have stakes in this, uh, thing. So we're right. trying to give stakes by having this like bloodbath. But it's interesting. I was listening to the, um, I, I was watching the after episode, you know, they've been doing this, like these post episode interviews, uh, with like Dennis Lehane, Richard Price, Stephen King, um, and the cast after, like every three episodes or so on HBO. Um, like Game of Thrones used to do it after every episode, but this, they did it like every three episodes. Um, and so they were, the director of this episode, uh, Andrew Bernstein was talking about how they have this like 12 minute shootout that opens the episode. And like, to me, it felt like when the Game of Thrones producers like would brag about a battle episode and I'm like, Ooh, that's just not why I'm here. Like it's not, it's, it's not why I'm here at all. And so like, it's interesting to me this like, this turn we were expecting for Jack, um, did come eventually and it came via Holly, right? Like his, her saying damn you to hell, which felt like it had like supernatural weight and power as she shouted it at him. Mm-hmm. And then him being unwilling to shoot her because he does like her. Um, and, and he's struggling throughout the whole shootout, right? Like he's drunk. His, his, um, the casting of this actor is tremendous because his, his features just looked like so brutish in, in that in that sequence, um, just like, you know, heavy with alcohol and, and like having given up and all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, but he would say things like when Andy would run out and get in the car, he's like, Oh, why'd you have to do that? Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to have to kill you, you poor little puppy dog, but like you got in the car. So now I have to sort of thing. Um, but, but it, you know, and then, and then he does like, he does the same thing that the last thrall did when he like, uh, incited the cops to shoot him where he was just like inciting the snake to bite him, uh, so that he could be stopped, uh, eventually. But like, I, I don't know that, like, once again, that turn didn't come 
in a way that made me feel like I understood exactly the arc of that character. I don't know if I'm missing something uh, or or what, but how did you feel about the way that Jack ended here? I mean, his kind of thing added to the whole general air of anticlimax to, to this part of the, of the episode where mm-hmm. it was like, okay, so that just went like that and now it's done, you know? And I, I think I had, because we spent so much time with Jack leading up to this episode, I expected there to be more of a turn or something, you know, and him kind of falling on his gun at the end also seemed to kind of violate the rules of the thralls, maybe not being able to kill themselves. Although I guess those rules will never, were never really laid out. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I don't know. It, it felt, I didn't, I didn't feel mad at it. I just was like, Oh, okay. Um, that said, I do, I do think the show got to a, a sort of more, a richer place by the end of the episode. I didn't dislike the episode, but yeah, I think this, yeah. the shootout thing, it was just like, I'm not, yeah, like you said, like, it's not why I'm watching the show. Um, right. and it just, you know, it was well staged, I guess, but I just didn't really like care about it. Right. I just didn't need a, like a, a battle episode, a battle sequence, like in, in the outsider. Okay. So we've got the shootout. Uh, almost everyone dies. Um, Holly and Ralph go into the cave and Claude follows them soon after. Um, one thing actually I really did love during the shootout though is like while the bullets are flying and the bodies are falling, we see El Cuco in the cave sort of like holding his hands up like he is. To me, I interpreted that as like feeding off mm-hmm. the grief that was going on outside the cave, you know, yeah. that all of that, you know, it was sort of like a hands up in a sort of, uh, Pentecostal praise position, but it felt like I'm absorbing the, the like massive grief that I can suck off of like Holly and, you know, everyone else who's out there. Um, and then we get this, sh- this showdown, which once this also felt kind of anticlimactic to me. I agree with you. I like what happens after this, after the shootout and after the cave. I like the stuff that the wrap up, but this I was like, okay, so, uh, you know, they walk in. Uh, El Cuco like says like be careful you know don't slip there's gonna be you know a cave-in uh, sort of thing Uh, they confront him then Claude comes in and we've got the two Claudes but there's never like a question of confusion over which is which which is something you can play with when you have doppelgangers but they don't Um, and then Claude fires his gun anyway and uh, you could interpret it as everyone gets a chance to kill El Cuco in some way, right? So Claude shoots him, Holly stabs him, and then Ralph sort of bashes his head in. Um, so what, what do you make? Um, one thing that I thought was interesting that Richard Price said, let me find the quote uh, that he said in the post episode interview. He's like, unlike, um, Unlike most Stephen King monsters, we've talked about this, like, uh, you know, uh, the kids in, uh, it confronting Pennywise in the sewers is very similar to like our heroes here confronting this monster in the caves. Um, but he says something like, um, unlike, you know, unlike, um, most of, uh, Stephen King's creatures, this monster doesn't become like, um, he says it's conversation, it's conversational versus phantasmagorical. Um, and it, it doesn't become in the books. My understanding is El Cuco like turns into these like red worms that can like latch onto you. And mm. that's the thing that I did not want to see. And I like that they didn't go there. Um, so anyway, uh, what, what did you, yeah. what did you think of all the cave stuff that we got here? Well, on the one hand, I, I, I feel that sense of the anticlimax, but also I kind of, in a weird way, like in, in the long view of the actual, of the whole episode, I appreciate that anticlimax because I think, you know, whatever this show was saying about how to conquer grief and, 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 or at least live with grief and live with this kind of low level or higher than that fear about the dangers in the world while also trying to, you know, enjoy life in the world. Um, I think it kind of meant something that in the end it was this entirely corporeal killable thing and it was, it kind of happened quickly and the thing sort of, you know, I, I think it, it seemed a bit reluctant about its own existence. You know, it was a kind of like a melancholy vampire, you know, uh, Brad Pitt in an interview with a vampire or something. <laughs> um, right. and I think that like that, there was, there was a point there that was just like, yeah, once you get to the heart of darkness, the thing at the center is just kind of like, 
you know, you or life, you know, it's not, there's not some, um, towering sort of entity that you, you know, that, that sort of is, is pulling all the strings. It's just like a, another thing, you know? And, um, I think that was sort of the, the point of it. And, and certainly like what, what, you know, ensued in the rest of the episode, I think kind of, um, spoken that in that same, uh, timber. Uh, so yeah, like on, uh, from like a just purely visceral, just like, you know, TV watcher, I was a little like, Oh, huh. But then the more I thought about it, the more I kind of understood why it had to be a bit of a, um, anticlimax because that's kind of been the point, I think the whole time. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I, I really like what you have to say about him being like a, <laughs> a lonely vampire. Um, I think it's Richard Price or possibly Dennis Lehane uh, said something that I jotted down. And I thought it was interesting that, yeah, like that this monster has been in isolation his whole life. And this is finally a chance to explain himself like in Holly, in someone who believes in him without like being under his thrall, he meets something that he's never encountered in his existence. And she finds out how little he knows about himself. Like, does he, he doesn't necessarily know that it, whether or not there are other things like him, he doesn't know, you know, like all this sort of stuff. Um, and so there's something kind of pathetic and sad about him. Um, you know, despite the fact, despite all the destru- destruction that we've seen, um, I, uh, I felt like when she asks why children and he says they taste the sweetest, I think you can't have that line in a post snowpiercer world. Um, where Chris, Chris Evans tearfully says babies taste the best. Um, but, um, but nonetheless, they went for it. Um, and, uh, most importantly, I think to this podcast, we finally know why, uh, Jack was buying all those lamps. Um, it's so this scene could have some lighting in it. Um, I guess, right? I guess so. There were, there were, there were lamps in the game. I was like, oh, is that why we had lamps earlier? Okay. Where the electricity uh, was coming from? Who knows? Did he also buy an <laughs> extension cord? Of the, the world's longest extension cord that like exits through the gift shop. Um, yeah, it's funny because, um, you know, a, po- a point, a point that, uh, Bateman was making, Jason Bateman was making in the, in the post episode interview. And, and remember that Bateman was like a producer and a director on the show, um, as much as he was a, a guest star in the first couple episodes, um, was that in casting the character of Claude, they wanted to find in Patty Considine someone who could really believably play, um, this sort of d- down and out petty criminal. And this like larger than life menacing monster. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because I do, I do think Patty did a really good job with that in the end. I think we've had some quibbles mm-hmm. about his accent, but like he's a performer we respect. And I think that there's like a shot reverse shot of the two of them and all that's different is the facial expression. And I really did feel like I was looking at two different characters, but funnily enough, like as much as I love, love, love Ben Mendelsohn in the lead role in this, show like that is also something that i think ben Mendelssohn would have done extraordinarily well uh is play that dual role um fully yeah yeah we've seen him play a lot of petty criminals so um you know um yeah yeah i don't know i i guess i just don't know that i feel like i really track everyone's arc here so okay okay but you it feels like you have a better grasp on it so let's let's do well i'll say really quickly another email we got was from marine who's been emailing all season about sort of book differences and a big difference that a lot of people remarked on is that in the uh book it's sort of holly who deals the fatal blow to El Cuco rather than like Claude who shoots El Cuco and a lot of people are like why would you rob holly of her kill i think holly gets uh, a lot to do in this episode, uh, the way in which she, she basically is the one who stops Jack, essentially. Um, and, you know, she does get to, I think all three of them have their role in killing El Cuco here. So I'm not mad, um, that it's Claude who, who shot him rather than Holly, who like in the books hits him with like a sock full of something. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm just not sure that I, I really understand, like, Claude's movement and arc here or Ralph. So Ralph, basically they're walking out of the cave. They, they think they've done the job. Um, and then Ralph sees his dead son. And I, 
I'm guessing the original victim that we, I couldn't tell who the other I kid was. Thought, uh, for some reason, I thought that was, um, uh, the victim's brother who, who, oh, who, who, who shot okay. Terry and who likes, whose face was kind of haunting him in the earlier episodes, but maybe I'm wrong. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Cause he shot him. So, okay. So, uh, his son and then, and then Frankie Peterson's brother. Um, but, uh, and that makes him go back into the cave and, and like bash El Cuco's head in. Uh, so what is your interpretation of, of what Ralph is going through there? Um, I don't really know. I mean, I think, I think it was sort yeah. of like, um, you know, part of just this like grief thing and, I don't know, telling it, he could beat it and, and making, you know, wanting to sort of be definitive about something to have closure, I guess was kind of what was happening. Um, I don't know that we needed it, but, um, yeah, it felt a little, um, and it was like, was he really seeing them? And, and, and I guess it was it El Cuco kind of causing him to see it. I don't know. It felt a little muddled. Yeah. I wasn't sure. Like if, if, Seeing those projections there is what made him decide that El Cuco was still alive. Um, or if it was some sort of important journey through belief that he had in that moment. But I can't say I have a firm grip on either of those things being true. And so to me, it just feels a little like confusing. And then he sort of goes back to give a like Princess Bride to the pain sort of speech to El Cuco before bashing his head in. So once again, I don't know, like the shootout stuff and the cave stuff, like, there's some good performance stuff in there, but I'm, but it doesn't really hit with me. And if, if the show had ended there, I would have been like really dissatisfied with the finale. But then we get a lot of this like really meaty, uh, wrap up stuff. So, um, let's talk about that. Um, yeah, let's talk about, I mean, I'm just going to say, I don't understand what story they cook up. I don't understand the intricacies of like how they lie to the police while also exonerating well, various people. Well, they were like, Jack is working in concert with a, um, you know, someone that they suspect is actually the person who killed Frankie Peterson. And as a result, all these people died in the parking lot of a gift shop, which is, you know, where they were technically. Um, and, um, and I, I guess perhaps, I don't know what kind of corpse they left behind after they bashed in El Cuco's head or what. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also confused. Sorry. I mean, like, I know our job is to sort of provide answers, but I rewatched this episode a couple times and I'm still like pretty confused. Like I'm confused when Holly said, who's Terry? That confused me. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like, was she just like too caught up in her grief about Andy or, or, or whatever? Like it, it was a confusing moment for me. Um, and so, yeah, I, and I, and I, I agree. I don't really fully understand or how it's connected to the thing that happened last week with them finding like another kid and, you know, the like DA being like, Oh, oh, dang, you know, like it's, they didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't meaningfully connect those two things in any way, in a way that I was expecting them to. But I guess the point is they figured out a way to lie in concert that exonerated Terry in some way. So that's interesting. Um, and Claude. And, and well, Claude. Yeah. Cause he was sort of suspected in that other, in, in trying to, right. Uh, so basically everyone's right. been cleared. Yeah. Right. So, um, so what do you make of, um, let's, let's go with the Holly scene first and then we'll get to Jeannie. Um, so how did, how did you feel about the, the Holly wrap up here? I mean, uh, yeah, the, the who's Terry thing was confusing. I wasn't sure if she was making like a dark joke about like how far they'd gotten from their original intent in the investigation or what, but like, um, or if it was implying that the El Puco had somehow kind of gotten in her head, like I, I wasn't, I wasn't really sure about that, but I, I liked, you know, I kind of liked the explication of why the thing is called the outsider. Um, I thought that was well done by Erivo. Um, and you know, I like that kind of like wistful, like, you know, I don't know if I'll see you again, but like maybe, you know, um, we had this experience together and, but now we kind of, you know, got to kind of resume our, our regular lives. And, you know, the, the show, you know, leaves things pretty open for a season two with Mendelssohn and Revo if they wanted to do that, you know. I mean, I think it was interesting that, you know, um, you know, Ralph asks her as she's leaving, like, what do you think else is out there? 
and she right. shrugs and, but she gives him this kind of like weary smile as she does it, which I think is interesting. And I think that there it's, you know, the kind of thing of like, well, what else could hurt me? And it's like, who knows? You know, like we have no way of knowing. And that's kind of the, um, the, one of the, uh, difficult, uh, uncertainties of life, you know? And, um, I thought that, that moment kind of punctuated that well. Yeah. I think it's interesting that, um, <clears throat> it, it kind of feels like every limited series nowadays wants to leave the door open for a second season. If, you know, if the ratings are gangbusters or something like that, they want to make that an option. And so the door is very much left open, not just with like that, uh, maybe we could work together moment, but also the, the mid credits, um, which seem to imply that Holly could also be infected question mark. Um, and then also the, the song that plays on the radio as, as the episode, uh, finally closes, uh, is the song that Ralph was talking about when he's talking about when his mother died, um, and all that sort of stuff. So like, I don't know, just like, Hey, more spooky stuff is out there. Maybe mm-hmm. it's El Cuco related. Maybe it's elsewise, but you know, um, Holly's fight isn't over sort of thing. Um, I think yeah. for, for me to put a button on, on the Holly of it all. Oh. Cynthia Revo's performance and Ben Mendelsohn's performance are like the real, real, real like uh, joys of this series for me. And, um, this as a calling card for Cynthia Revo, cause like, I, yeah, did she get nominated for an Oscar this year? She did. Uh, did a ton of people see Harriet? Uh, not really. And, uh, have a ton of people seen her great work on Broadway? Um, you know, plenty, but not, you know, as many as maybe would turn into a Sunday night show on HBO. So my hope is, you know, and, and let alone, um, see widows, um, or bad times at the El Royale. So like though Cynthia Revo is someone that you and I have been aware of, like I'm hoping that this is something that really pushes her through to broader audiences. Cause she's, I think she's incredible. And this is a calling card for things that she can do. Um, really excites me. Um, and then Ben Mendelsohn is just, you know, amazing and everything. So good job. Um, Ben, um, what about uh the glory, the glory of it all? Um Yeah, I mean the glory of it all and um the the final scene with um Jeannie and Ralph, I think kind of are work in concert as they because because especially the Jeannie and Ralph thing is an inversion of of the Ralph asking Holly, like, what else is out there? Like what other dark things are out there? Because Jeannie takes this new, new sort of supernatural knowledge and says, well, maybe that just means we'll see our son again. You know, like, like, like she, she sees the kind of hope in, in, um, in that. And I think that the glory scene is located in the middle of those two things, you know, like she yeah. basically asks glory to like, understand that this thing did happen, but like, don't tell any, like, like, like both believe it and don't believe it, you know? Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm glad that we did, you know, I think it was necessary to have one last moment with glory. Um, and I think it was, you know, I like, I liked how kind of quiet it was and I liked how much Mayor Whittingham got to do at the end of the show. Yeah. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheik. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Um, all right. You threatened me with a good time, um, by saying, by telling me on Twitter that you were going to talk about the film Rabbit Hole, which is also about, uh, the death of a child in grief. Um, so w- what did, what, was that a joke or did you actually want to talk about it? Well, no. I mean, I think that one of the final scenes in Rabbit Hole, which is about a, you know, mother played by Nicole Kidman, um, in, in the movie version, Cynthia Nixon did it on Broadway. Um, it, you know, her, her son is, is, is killed in a, in a, he's hit by a car. Um, and she's sitting on the bench, on a bench, uh, with the teenage boy who was driving the car that, um, killed her son. And, um, they're talking about, um, kind of like multiverse theory mm. a little bit. And that, you know, that there are infinite versions of ourselves, uh, in other dimensions, um, that we can't see. Uh, and, and Nicole Kidman's character says something like that. I, I like to think about that, like somewhere out there, I'm having a great time. Um, and, or a good time or something. And it's just a really beautiful little scene with her and Miles Teller. Um, and I just think that it's like something about Jeannie and Ralph sitting on a bench, uh, in the cemetery, looking at their son's grave, kind of talking about what they've just experienced and what they kind of hope to experience in the future is like taking a kind of boggling precept, like, um, not just, you know, multiverse theory, not just, you know, supernatural entities, the afterlife, but a complex theory, like, um, you know, death and grief and all that stuff and, and, and to kind of, um, find a, a hope in it, you know, I mean, I think that's kind of like where probably religion is ultimately sourced, you know, like, mm. okay. So, you know, Ralph and Jeannie, we know this thing exists or we know this multiverse theory thing exists in rabbit hole. So like, what, what, what good is there to see of this scary thing? You know, like what, what, like, and I think that that's just kind of about how people, um, you know, heal themselves and it's maybe sometimes blinkered, but like we just try to find the hope in things, the silver lining in things, you know, if we're, if we're kind of predisposed to do that. So I, I don't know. I just think that scene was really pretty and with Jeannie and Ralph and, and, and I like that idea, um, that she puts forward that like, you know, yeah, maybe this, this, this dark thing has really for even darker implications, or maybe it means that other wild and supernatural and sort of fantastical things like seeing someone in that we lost in the afterlife is possible. Yeah, I really love that scene. I love her burning the chair. Um, you know, I think she, she was also an incredible, incredible part. Maybe, maybe the shootout in the cave, um, didn't land perfectly for me because it needed more Mary Winningham, though, uh, thank goodness <laughs> Jeannie was out of harm's way. Um, uh, there was another moment that I was confused by actually in the episode is like, so she's burning the chair. You get this great like chair on fire image. And then we see Ralph, we see Ralph exit uh, the police station. Um, I, I believe he's still in Tennessee when he does this. And you see a truck go by with two people with lit torches in the back of a truck. And I was like, are those people going to the cave? Is that why they have torches? Wouldn't you wait until you got to the cave before you light your torch? Like what, why are, why are two people holding fire in the back? I rewound it like several times to try to figure out why. Um, and you know, it was, it was a nice visual of like the burning chair and the torches in the back of the truck. But I was like, I feel like there's just connective tissue missing here throughout mm-hmm. this episode, mm-hmm. actually. So, yeah. um, all right. Well, I mean, I think, I think, I think we did it. I think we did the I outsider. Um, yeah. I, I think, I think we did it. Um, I am really glad you picked it. This is your pick, Richard. Um, and I was a little like skeptical actually when you picked it. Uh, but you were right and I should listen to you more often. And, um, I'm really well, glad we've never we done went. a comedy before. So I, I wanted to try <laughs> that out. Something zippy, something lighthearted yeah. for yeah. us. Um, so, um, before we move on to our quick Westworld preview, um, any, what will you be doing to honor the life of Andy, um, today, Richard? <laughs> well, I'm going to pour one out in the parking lot of Big Daddy's Hangry Barbecue, of course. Great. I will be going to Highway Heaven to get some fried chicken and we will celebrate. <laughs> well, maybe he'll be there, our- heaven. <laughs> oh, Andy, frying chicken in heaven. Um, all right. So now we're going to talk about Westworld. This is not, you know, Richard and I have seen some of the upcoming season. We're not going to spoil anything. This is a more of like, where are we? What are we looking forward to? What's happening? Why isn't Ben Barnes here? Um, sort of thing. If you did not watch Westworld with us last two years ago, God time uh we we covered season two you can go back and listening to the, to the still watching uh westworld episodes uh in season two if you want to to get yourself to ramp yourself up uh we got some great interviews on that season we're gonna have some great interviews on this up- upcoming season of westworld as well um but richard um what 
What is most interesting to you, um, uh, without spoiling anything about a season three of Westworld? Uh, I think it's interesting that we're going to see the world that built Westworld, you know, um, where we're traveling outside of the park, uh, in this season. And, um, you know, I think in that this show is already pretty hard sci-fi, but, um, I think it's going to co- become even more so because it then opens up to speculate about more things that, um, exist, uh, in the future, be they kind of social, um, schema or like technology or, you know, geopolitics and, um, you know, so I think that's kind of interesting. I, I, I liked on the first two seasons where you get these little like glimpses and like, like intimations of what that, of that, what that world was like. Um, so I hope that like in fully exploring it, the show kind of, uh, widens its scope in an interesting way. Yeah. Um, the, um, the description that I've been using is sort of like, it's like in Jurassic Park when, uh, you know, the dinosaurs escape the island and the, you know, wreak havoc on the mainland is sort of like what we're seeing. Um, this is of course a reference to the, uh, classic film, Jurassic Park, the lost world. Um, where a T-Rex runs through San Diego. Yep. Yep. T-Rex, except it's Dolores in China. Uh, so, you know, we've got from the trailer, we've got some, some future China, some future LA, um, is happening and, um, also some future Bay Area fun stuff. Um, something that, you know, just based on the trailer alone, I think is pretty cool is like, okay, so we're missing, um, a lot of the like, you know, they shot, uh, w- the West World of West World out in, uh, I think it was Monument Park, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, these, these huge sweeping vistas and they didn't CGI them. They did that. And uh, something that I really appreciate, uh, that they've done for this season is like, Shooting in the future in a cityscape, uh, is more easy on your budget, probably, than shooting out, um, in, in the Mesa somewhere. Um, but they didn't skimp on locations and they found a lot of really, really cool real world existent locations, um, around the world to film in. There's like, um, the Museum of Art and Sciences and I think it's Barcelona, um, or maybe it's, um, anyway, it's in Spain, uh, is this huge, beautiful, white, futuristic structure, um, that you'll see in all the trailers. Um, and so they just found a lot of really cool locations, uh, that exist in the world and, and sort of dress them up a little bit to make them part of this whole, like, Delos future society. And you're right, Richard, we've heard bits and pieces about this society, like sort of, uh, in the first season, we found out that, like, uh, almost all diseases had been cured. Um, they hadn't stopped death yet, but they had cured a lot of other diseases. Um, I found out bits and pieces of sort of what, what the real world, um, uh, was like. And so now we'll, we'll spend a lot of time there. Um, the big addition to the cast is Aaron Paul, um, who plays the character of Caleb. And, um, you know, this will be something of, you know, a <laughs> joke I made elsewhere, uh, is that, uh, Dolores always needs a boyfriend, whether it's Jimmy Simpson or James Marsden, but both of those guys aren't in this season as far as we know. So along comes Aaron Paul. I'm not saying he plays her actual literal boyfriend, but it's like, you know, uh, Dolores likes a, a male foil. Um, and yeah, they uh, haven't, they haven't defined the relationship. They haven't had the talk yet, but you know, they're, they're, <laughs> right. they're seeing each other. They're hanging out. They're hanging out. Mm, yeah. Um, so, so Aaron Paul is here. Um, Richard, you and I were talking a little informally last night about sort of Aaron Paul and what we've enjoyed from him in the past. Um, obviously a lot of people know him, uh, from as, uh, Jesse Pinkman on, on Breaking Bad. Um, you also mentioned his work on Big Love. So what do you feel like Aaron Paul is, is really good at, uh, that, you know, hopefully he will be able to tap into this season? Um, I mean, he's, he's an actor who, in, in most of what I've seen of him, uh, is playing someone, uh, who exists or is entering into a strange world, be it the, the world of polygamy in Big Love, where he played Amanda Seyfried's, um, boyfriend's or character's boyfriend and maybe then eventual husband, I forget. Um, or, you know, venturing into the world of, you know, drug cartels and Breaking Bad or cults in, um, what was that show the called? Path. The Path. The Path. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that like he could be good at being this sort of like, uh, our, our, one of our conduits, you know, into this world that, um, but, uh, but, but then again, we also have, um, Dolores navigating things. Presumably Maeve is going to get involved and, uh, uh, uh Bernard. Arnold, Bernard or, or slash Arnold, um, uh, 
you know, so like, so maybe we don't necessarily need a, a, a new character to introduce us to, um, you know, the world outside Westworld because people we already know are going to be doing that for us. Um, but he's, you know, he is human and everyone else is a robot. So maybe that that's a crucial distinction. Right. Our human proxy. Um, at least we I assume he's is- human. Yeah, uh, there's always there's always questions about the the nature of the reality uh, in Westworld, um, and then uh, I mean I guess I'm excited to you know see what everyone thinks of this. This is I agree with you. It's much more like Blade Runner than it is um, you know the Westworld that we've seen. It's a very it's a very different show. It's almost like a like a soft reboot, uh, which is something we talked about at the end of season two. Like that you know. They killed off a bunch of characters. Um, it's pretty much only our hosts that are still like, you know, going and, um, and they're largely moving location, though we still have some people left in the park. Um, and so, you know, if, if you're here for Evan Rachel Wood, you're here for the duration. So there you go. Um, I guess I'm, I'm interested to see how some of these more, uh, you know, social techno, uh, you know, robots, they're just like us, um, in the real world, um, how that's going to land with audiences and especially how, like, because this conceit, this conceit as explained by this trailer that they released where they talked about, um, these, uh, various aberrations in history, um, I don't know if you saw this trailer it was it was narrated by Vincent Cassell, but it was just sort of like um the these things that happened, these riots, these you know whatever, and I'm like we're in the middle of this possible pandemic or at least we're treating it like a pandemic we're we're fearful society feels like it's like breaking down a little bit, maybe not New York, Richard, we were talking about this New York maybe doesn't panic out so much, but California, our shelves are bare. It's very weird out here right now, and so like what a weird what an interesting time to watch this like futuristic um you know what will become a society uh you know after a crisis sort of show so um Here's to watching Westworld in, in love in the time of cholera, Westworld in the time of Corona. Um, here we go. Or maybe, or maybe this will all be over by the time, um, the show actually premieres. I don't think so though. Um, anything else, <laughs> Richard, that you want to talk about? Yeah, now that I made it, it a, a big dive. Four days. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. I, I believe in Mike Pence. It's going to be fine. What's up? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm excited. Um, this is a fun show to talk about. It's a, it's a fun show to speculate about. Um, you know, it, it's not based on a book. Uh, it's based on an old movie. Um, but, or was it a book first? No, I think it was just no. Michael Crichton made the movie. Um, yeah. So, so it's not like The Outsider where we had a, you know, if we wanted to peak, we had a roadmap for maybe where the thing was headed. Um, in this case, we have no idea. Though something, so. yeah, though something I might suggest is, um, I know that some people went and watched Westworld, uh, starring Yul Brenner, uh, when uh, the, the show first premiered. Um, there is another film called Future World, which is a sequel to Westworld, um, that I've never seen. Um, but this season seems to draw from some of the future world stuff. So you might want to check that out if you want to do some extra homework. Um, really important though, Richard, without Ben Barnes and James Marsden, um, who are our Westworld boyfriends this season? I mean, I guess it could be Aaron Paul, but is there, are there any other good options here? Uh, Big Daddy Vincent Cassell, Vincent Cassell, like what are, what are we going to do? What do you think? Um, no, I, I, <laughs> well, for one thing, Rafi Gavron is briefly in the season, I believe, uh, as a kind of like jerky rich guy. Um, and he was in Rome and, uh, well, A Star is Born, he played the bad manager who <laughs> everyone hated. Oh, um, that guy. Yeah, but yeah. I thought he was cute ever since, uh, for a while. Anyway, so he's in it, but, um, I really think like, you know, regardless of gender and sexual preference and all those things, I mean, let's, I'm just going to go to Maeve. She's, she's right there. Yeah. She's my, yeah, she's my, true. my, my partner for this. She's season. your, con- she's your constant. I love it. All right. So, uh, I will latch on to the possibly evil, uh, Vincent Cassell, um, who I have loved for a very long time and you can have Maeve and we will just divide and conquer that way. Um, our options are open though. So if you guys have better candidates for us, let us know. Um, All right. Well, Richard, until we officially travel, 
to Westworld and beyond, uh, where can folks find you? Oh, I'm just going to be like, uh, in the, uh, the old bordello, just playing like ragtime covers of pop songs, uh, for the next week <laughs> in honor of the first season of the of Westworld. <laughs> where yeah. will you be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cue up the old timey piano Radiohead. Um, mm-hmm. I will be freeze framing every screen, tablet, cell phone, uh, shot in the episode. I, I gotta tell you, for someone who like, makes a habit of close watching Westworld. The fact that they've moved to uh, a setting where there are a lot of screens with potential info on them uh, has made my process of watching it, uh, episodes much slower. So uh, <laughs> I will be obsessively pouring over screenshots, hoping to have all the answers for you guys. Uh, more answers than I don't know why Holly said, who's Terry. Um, you know, when we come back for Westworld, uh, you can find me on vanityfair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this and we will, you will hear us this Sunday, right after the episode of Westworld premieres, this, uh, podcast still watching Westworld will drop in your feed and you will hear us talk all about the future of Dolores, etc. We'll see you then. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 